God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that you are worthy. God, that when we call upon your name, we're not calling upon, upon just a name or, or just a, a lowercase g God. We are calling upon the name of the almighty, the holy, the worthy God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of all things. God, we thank you that you and your grace reached for us and you pulled us from the raging sea. God, that you paid our debt and won the victory and that we now can put our hope in Christ alone. God, we love you this morning and we praise you. May all that we do and all that we say and all that we think be honoring and glorifying to your name this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You all can have a seat. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Thank you, church, for singing so well this morning. As we said uh, throughout our service today, I think there's a theme going on that he's worthy of our praise and our worship. And I think when our voices are together and we're singing unto our God, it pleases him. It's a sweet fragrance. It's an offering unto him. I'm glad to be a part of a church family that worships the Lord together. Every generation has its challenges. In the midst of rebellious, ungodly, a dark culture, God had his hand on a man named Noah who understood the worthiness of God. I want us to read this chapter together as a church family. One of our goals has been to read Genesis 1 through 11 out loud together. So I'm going to ask you to stand again and let's read this chapter out loud. When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 
30 cubits. Make a roof of the ark and finish it to the cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything you that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all the flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. You may be seated. Join with me in prayer again. Father, even as we open up your word, we're struck with your awesomeness. What a holy God you are, perfect, without sin, without corruption, without any imperfection. And yet, even as we read in Noah's day, what rebellion took place. We pray that you'll speak to us in our generation today what lessons you would have us to learn by looking back at what happened in Noah's day. Teach us. We're, we're yours. We're your sons and we're your daughters. We're your children and we want to obey and do the work you've given us. So speak to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, after the fall, you might hope for a rebound of humanity. Maybe they would begin to do well, but not so. We see the first murder within a family, even, with uh, Cain and Abel in chapter 4. And then you begin to see how the generations came and went. And how brief life is, even though at that point they were living longer. The human race was not as corrupted yet and shorter life given. But yet life still came to an end. And every person that walks on this earth will face death. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we see how the earth had become so corrupt. It's failure and darkness And therefore, enter a theological concept that we call total depravity. I I want us to make sure that we're learning more and more about who God is and who we are and have good theology. And I think from chapter 6, we have no question of what this concept, that this concept is true of total depravity. Now, some hear those words and they think, well, that means that People are incapable of any decency or any act of kindness. And that's not what total depravity is. There still is the image of God in humanity. There is still uh, the remnants of, of not only the image of God, but even people who are brought up and who are trained and taught some good things. It's not that people can't do any kind of good at all, but total depravity refers to the universal condition of each person without Christ. 
And that's what we find in Genesis 3. Sin entered in and it passed upon all people. And all people now are lost without Christ. We're dead in sin and not able to come to God on our own or be made right with God except by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Man is not innately good. And it's not just that we learn evil because of our environment. We, we, we do learn evil because of our environment, but evil is within each of us. It's innate. We're, we're sinners, and without Christ, we would pay an awful price because of that sin. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitfully wicked. Romans 3 says, There's none good, no, not one. And Ephesians 2 said that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And by nature, we were objects of wrath. Sin corrupted the whole human race, and without Christ, there's absolutely no hope. So one question that does tend to pop up along the way is, well, how were people saved, or were they saved in the Old Testament? Because the Messiah had not yet come. We get our first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. But what about until the, ser- until the seed came, until the Savior came, Jesus himself? Well, the key word is faith. Just like in the New Testament, uh, it's still by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's just a different time perspective. Just as now we look back by faith at the redemptive work that Christ has done for us, for our salvation in the cross, in the resurrection, they looked forward by faith to his redemptive work. They, they received the promise of payment by faith, We received the payment paid in full by faith. They believed the snake would be crushed, and we believe because the snake was crushed. It's a matter of time perspective. They were looking forward to the coming, so they were saved by faith in what they believed the Messiah would be and would come. We're saved by looking back now at the fact that he did come and placing our faith in his death in his resurrection. And that's why we talk about even the Old Testament saints as people of faith. They believed. And when you go to the, to the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, Noah, who is coming to the forefront here in chapter 6, was identified as a man of faith. Listen to Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen... In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Even though Noah was a man of faith, he lived in a world that was in a downward spiral. And let's just take a look at God's perspective of this fallen world. When we get to chapter 6, we, we read about the, the sons of God and the daughters of man and the intermarriage that has taken place there. 
And there are two primary views of what's happening. This is one of the more controversial, difficult passages. Not only the sons of God and the sons of man, but who the Nephilim are. And we can do some different studies and research over this. But they fall pretty much in the two categories. One category is that these are the fallen angels who intermarry with humanity. And there's a a, a thought that they were trying to corrupt these fallen angels, the seed of the woman, so that the Messiah could not come. Uh, It it would be a corrupt race. So that's that's one view. It's It's a difficult view. There are no views that, when you look at this, that are just easy and without problem. Another view is that the sons of God represent the sons of Seth. That in that godly lineage, and the uh, daughters of man represent the daughters of Cain, the, the race that extended from Cain. And there was an intermarriage of these two lines that, again, the hope was to corrupt the race of humanity. Now, I probably take a combination of those views as I read this. And again, good people on both sides of that argument, I I would say to you there was an intermarriage of godly and ungodly. And whether we want to say it was the race of Cain or uh, the Cain and the race of Seth, it doesn't really matter. All of humanity is, is spiraling out of control in this moment, in this time. But what we do see is how the power of darkness is taking control and those who are on earth are giving in to the power of darkness and so we have a culture that's more or less demonized that's being controlled by the enemy by satan himself and the fallen angels and so whether we want to say these were humans who were inhabited by demons and, and the whole human race was giving into that. It was a dark day. And so again, whichever view you want to take on that, the main point is to see the corruption of the human race. That's what we see here. We see the consequences of those who are rebelling against God, turning from Him, who love the darkness more than the light, who think they have a better way than God Himself. And so you think, well, what about the Nephilim here? And it seems like they're doing supernatural kinds of things, uh, things that are beyond the human means. Well, I don't have any problem in thinking about demon possession to that point. Just this last week, if you were reading the church Bible reading plan, you came through Mark chapter 5, and you see the Gerasene demoniac, who even the chains couldn't hold him. He would break out of the chains. It was kind of a superhuman strength that he was given in those moments. But but again, regardless, we see a turning from God, people who are giving control over to Satan and who were living lives under his control rather than the control of God. They had placed their faith in themselves and in those around them rather than their faith in God as Noah had done. Now, God's perspective of the fallen world, you you see in verse 5 what God saw in chapter 6. He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, the intensity of evil that had come because people were not willing 
to surrender their lives to God and worship the one true God. God saw the wickedness, the intensity of evil that was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so you see the frequency of evil and sin. It's every, every thought, every action, it's uh, moved in the direction of uh, the enemy rather than our good God himself. God saw the magnitude of evil, the frequency of evil. And so what did, how did God respond? Oftentimes when we read about God's actions and emotions, we, we are hearing them in human terms. We, we call this word anthropomorphic when we ascribe to God, who is spirit, human characteristics. God's made himself known through creation and through words. And so our best words oftentimes are in regards to human beings and we're trying to better understand God. And so we describe him often through human vocabulary and by by human characteristics. And so in this text it says in verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. In one way I would say that's, that he understood the gravity of what was about to happen. Here's this holy God. Sin must be judged. He regretted that he had made... He knew he had the knowledge of what was getting ready to happen in judgment. It's not like he looked back and, and, and thought that he had made a mistake somehow. That's not the kind of regret here. Maybe it's a little bit more like a parent who spanks his or her son or daughter. And it's not that you uh, know you shouldn't have spanked that child. It's just the regret that you had to spank the child and you knew what the feeling was going to be and what the result of that was going to be in that moment. You knew long term it had to happen. Well, God had that sense of regret. He understood the gravity of, of what was about to happen. But the text also says, and it grieved him to his heart. He regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. He felt the gravity of what was about to happen. Not only does he have the knowledge, but he has the emotion, the compassion. Felt the gravity was what, it grieved him. How, how great is our God that he has even touched by what we're doing here on earth. That there would be a a grief, uh, that he would even have compassion on us. But the judgment is also a part of this. He judged. He said in verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man. You, You see it a little further in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth. And behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God acted with the gravity of what should happen. You see his holiness here. In, in 120 years... 
this judgment's going to come from this time that God has told Noah this. We see that in verse 3, that uh, his days shall be 120 years. God has set a time limit on how much longer this is going to run on before he brings judgment. And even that time limit is an indication of God's patience and God's kindness. It's a window. It's a window of hope that people still have an opportunity to turn and repent from their evilness, from their wickedness, from their sin. When I see this text and I read about what God is doing, maybe we should be a little less concerned with what the world thinks of us and more concerned about what God thinks of us. Students in your school, it's really hard with the peer pressure not to be more concerned about what your fellow students and maybe even maybe even some who are, who are over you. It's hard not to be more concerned about what they think of you than what God thinks of you. Think back to the days of Noah. Noah was a man that pretty much everybody around him was living an ungodly life. And God at times in history has called people out in some of these momentous times and, and shown favor and, and they've had favor in his eyes. And if we're not careful as a church, as a people, we will seek the favor of man over the favor of God. We want people around us to be happy with us and like us. And we, we don't want to offend anybody. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to offend someone. I'm not saying that we intentionally are ugly. I'm not saying that we intentionally pick a fight. I'm not saying that we act in any way other than a Christ-like way. But I am saying we should be much more concerned about what God thinks of us than the world thinks of us. Some of you are in situations even right now where you have a boss who doesn't like how you think about a certain issue and wants you to recant or to change your biblical view of an issue. Think back to Noah. It's better to be a man like Noah having favor with God than to be in the world having favor with man. God is a holy God. Don't ever lose perspective of how he sees the fallen world. He he regretted that he had made man. He grieved over what was about to happen, but he had to judge because he is a holy God. Now think for a few minutes about God's people in the midst of a fallen world. Here's Noah. Did you hear his character in verse 9? These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. In some ways we say this is a story about Noah, but we know better. This is a story about God. And this is what God is able to do in a man's life when he surrenders himself and by faith is a follower of God. God had changed Noah's character. He was a righteous man. What does it mean to be righteous? He did what was right. He did what was right in the right way. And he did what was right in the right way for the right reason. He was a righteous man. He was following the way of God. And that's the call for all of us as men and women and boys and girls that we would be righteous, not self-righteous. 
You see, that's the difference in attitude, and that's the legalism, and that's the, the hatred, and that's not who God is about, and that's not who we're about. It's not a self-righteousness. It's a righteousness that's found in God that I have no choice but to obey Him. I have no choice but to follow what He has commanded in this book. That's a humble kind of following. Noah was a righteous man. It says he was blameless in his generation. Again, he was a minority. Oftentimes you may feel like you're a minority whether it's at school or work or in your neighborhood or even in your own home and family. Noah was blameless in his generation. Some would say, well, how in the world could anybody ever be a righteous man in this generation? And and I wonder how that was possible for Noah. I wonder how that was possible for Daniel. I wonder how that was possible. And we could go through the list of those who by faith followed God. And it was not possible in themselves. But they drew strength from God himself. And it says he walked with God. He fulfilled his purpose. He knew God. He walked with God. He enjoyed God. And I would say to you today, church, God's more concerned with who you're becoming than what you could ever do for him. God could do in a single second anything he wants to do. But what God is interested in is developing people of faith and helping them to grow in their relationship with Him. He wants, He He graciously created us to know Him and to enjoy Him. He, out of His generosity, created us to know Him. And to walk with God is to fulfill the very purpose that you've been put here on earth for. God's concerned about who you're becoming. And if you're becoming the kind of person that God wants you to be, he'll use you for his glory. That's, that's the irony, isn't it? Sometimes we get so focused on what I can do, what I can do, and God's working on who we are. And if we'll let him do that work in who we are, he will then use us to do what he wants to do. Noah's character. But think also about Noah's commission. I noticed two things about what God had given Noah to do. Did you pick that up in verse 10? And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You see, he had a family to raise. He was to make disciples in his very house. This is God's intention. God said, be fruitful and multiply so that his glory could be spread through the earth. And God wanted his glory spread again on the earth. And so Noah was charged with these three sons to raise up and to disciple at home. Now, tonight when we gather in our evening service at 5, I'm going to go into a lot more detail about some family equipping as parents and grandparents, as a church family, how we're investing in the next generation. But for now, let me just say this. God had given Noah a priority in the raising of these sons. And they would be integral to the work that God was going to do in the days ahead. Don't take lightly, parents, your assignment. I look out across our congregation and I see children and I see students. I see parents that God's given a huge assignment. If you're a child or a teen, a student today, be thankful for parents who are 
seeking to raise you. Be thankful every time they open up the Word of God and have family devotions. Be thankful every time they sit down with you and give you consequences for misbehavior. They've taken seriously the assignment God's given them. Be thankful every time a grandparent sits down and begins to explain the things of God and spends time investing and teaching about the things of God. Be thankful for uh, teachers who will teach on a Sunday morning about the things of God to our children and our students. You see, part of Noah's commission was a family to raise And then there was a flood to prepare for. Make yourself, verse 14, an ark of gopher wood. We have no idea what gopher wood is. I I have a parenting joke there and say, you you see, that's the kind of wood that kids go for, right? Kids go for things their parents tell them to go for, right? Terrible joke. But he was to make this ark of gopher wood. And he was to cover it in pitch. That word pitch is the same word that's used for atonement. It's covering. You began to see some of the picture of Christ because this boat is a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. One who would save, this boat would save God's people. Jesus is the Savior. He saves God's people. And Noah, as he had this assignment, it was a huge assignment. He was to make this big boat, this ark, 300 cubits long, a cubit being from the point of the middle finger to the bottom of the elbow, a cubit. Now, for all of us, that may vary an inch or two. The longer cubit was about 22 inches, and most likely that was what Noah would have been going by, that larger cubit of 22 inches, so the boat would have been about 550 feet long. 90 feet wide and 55 feet high. The length was about one and a half football fields when you take the end zones in together because a football field was about 360 feet long. So about one and a half football fields, again, including the end zones. Some have said because of the way these three uh, floors would have been a part of the boat, that on each floor you could have fit about 22 basketball courts. This is a huge boat. It's a huge assignment. It's bigger than anybody had ever built before. As a matter of fact, it might have been the only boat that had been built before. But it's, it's huge. And it's a bigger assignment than what Noah could have taken on himself. And I would say to you that The family to raise was just as huge as building that ark and preparing for the flood. Building the ark was a big assignment, but not any bigger than raising the children that would be on the ark. And that's what this generation is doing. It's raising up that next uh, group, that next generation, who will be participants in the church and do the work that God has given us. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. First, be a part of the family of God. Know that you have 
surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, that you have admitted that you're a sinner and that you're deserving of punishment and eternal death, but that God has provided a way for you to be forgiven and to be saved. He sent His Son who paid the price on the cross and shows He has power over sin through the resurrection And by placing your faith in the finished work of Christ, you can be saved. Don't take the Lord's Supper unless you're a part of the family of God. Oftentimes, we get ready to take the Lord's Supper. We say, if there's any sin in your life. Primarily, we're usually thinking about sins of commission. Things that we've done wrong. uh, Disobedience in terms of actually doing things, lying or stealing or cheating or lusting or whatever it might be. And that is true. We should, we should confess and repent of any of that. But don't forget also those sins of omission, what we haven't done, that we've been commanded to do. When I think about this family to raise, and I think about this flood to prepare for, Noah in Second Peter 2 verse 5 is known as a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. In the text, we don't have him going around. It doesn't indicate this. We don't see him going door to door and preaching on the street. But I think there is some room for us to, to interpret that and read between the lines, especially from 2 Peter 2, 5, that Noah was not quite about the coming judgment. He lived a life of righteousness But he also preached a message of righteousness. And sometimes our sin is just a sin of omission, what we have not done. Jesus has clearly said, go and make disciples. We are here for this time. Lawndale Baptist Church and the people who make up this body of believers, we're here for this time. We're here for this place. We're here for this generation of people. And just like Noah was a was a preacher of righteousness, just so we should be preachers of righteousness. He was an Old Testament disciple maker, and we're to be New Testament disciple makers. Our church is a training center so that we can be a sending center to send people out to make disciples all over Greensboro, all over North Carolina, all over the world. And here we're sending you into your own homes as moms and dads and grandparents. We're sending you into your neighborhood to make disciples. We're sending you in your school. We're sending you in your workplace to make disciples. You may be the only light that's there in your area of influence. But remember, you're not doing it alone. Jesus said... And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper this morning, our song of invitation, I'm going to ask you in your seat to do business with God. You're welcome to come and pray at the altar as well. But would you ask the Lord to search your heart this morning? Is there anything there that's not pleasing to Him? Is there anything that you're not doing that's not pleasing Him too? sin of commission, sin of omission. Father, we thank you that your word is true. That as we study it, as we read it, 
we're able to hear you and know your perspective. And so I pray that this morning, right now, that you'd bring such strong conviction. Whatever darkness is in our lives right now, shine your light there. Whatever we're doing that we shouldn't be doing, Lord, convict us. Whatever we're not doing that we should be doing, Lord, convict us. Let this be a time when we remember you and what you've done for us and surrender all to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.